Heavenly Father, we come before you once again in these times in which we live, thanking you for your word, for its eternal glory and meaning. Meet with us now, Lord God, in the name of your son, Jesus, and speak to us through your word by your spirit. In his name, the one who saved us, we pray. Amen. Okay, we're moving on to the second book of Psalms in the Hebrew canon, which commences with the 42nd Psalm. I will see how far we get, but we have Psalm 42, Psalm 43, and then Psalm 45 tonight. I don't know how far we will get, but we will get as far as we can get. Let's begin with Psalm 42. These are not Davidic Psalms. They're not Psalms of David. First of all, remember our terms. A single Psalm is a Mizmor, Mizmor. Psalms is Tehilim, Tehilim, same root as Lechalel, Tehilah Lechalel, to praise. So it's a hymn book of praises. But one Psalm is called the Mizmor. Then we have Davidic Psalms and non-Davidic Psalms. Tonight, we're going to begin with non-Davidic Psalms, Psalms that are not written by King David or to King David or you know, not, not composed by King David. Additionally, these Psalms tonight are maskilim, maskilim or maskils. A maskil is a reference to, to a kind of music but it is a didactic or contemplative psalm that teaches something, that teaches something. Uh, you, you know, uh, to teach little children to sing uh, the scale, to teach the scale on the piano to little, to little kids. Though a deer, a female deer, ray, a drop of golden... You, you're using music to teach a musical scale. Okay, you know, <clears throat> A, B, C, D, E, F, G, you're using music to teach the alphabet. Well, perhaps it's a bad comparison, but a maskil is something like that. The melody itself is designed to be instructive. It's designed to be instructive or to relate something didactively or possibly contemplatively, possibly contemplatively. Experts are not exactly sure about all of these things. But this is a miskeel of the sons of Korach, the sons of Korach. That in itself is of interest. Turn with me, please, to the epistle of Jude. Only one chapter, of course, Jude, verse 11. We have at least three people, persons, named Korach in Scripture. One was very ancient, going back to the time of the patriarchs, and it was a relation of Esau, a relation, someone related to Esau, not that one, too soon. Then there's an obscure Korach, named only one time, we know little about him, in the Book of Chronicles. But then there's the famous Korach from the rebellion against Moses in the Book of Numbers. And the New Testament makes reference to this in Jude verse 11. Woe to them, they've gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the error of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. 
a long time ago. Morio did a teaching. I did a teaching. It's probably available in a recorded form on the internet when Korach rebels. When Korach rebels or the rebellion of Korach. Korach was someone who objected to Moses and Aaron and the appointment of the priests. There was a rivalry. There was a jealousy involved with Korach. And he had about 250 followers and they counseled rebellion against Moses and against Moses. But this was a rebellion against what God had ordained. There was a jealousy against who and what God had ordained. Uh, they were the forebearers of these sons of Korach. Now, the sons of Korach do not necessarily mean immediate sons, it could just mean descendants, descendants of Korach. They knew their lineage. First thing we see, of course, with Korach is never be jealous of God's calling on someone else. God's calling on someone else does not determine their eternal status or their standing. It's someone's faithfulness to the calling that will determine someone's standing more than the what the calling is itself. Secondly, <clears throat> because you have bad family, or bad ancestors, uh, doesn't mean you have to be that. It doesn't mean that you are under the curse, some kind of a generational curse. Now, there has been a lot of distortion of scripture among certain hyper-charismatics and ultra-Pentecostals concerning generational curses. Oh, because your great-grandfather was a Freemason, we have to break this curse and all that kind of stuff. Well, Freemasonry is demonic. If your great-grandfather's <laughs> uh, Masonic aprons or regalia is around or books, you should burn those things. They're occult objects. That's true. But the idea that you are under some curse because of who your ancestors are is absurd, is absurd. God holds the account of the fifth or sixth generation, but that's if there's no repentance, if you follow in the tradition, we see this in Kings and Chronicles. There were bad kings who had bad sons, but there were good kings who had bad fathers. Uh, we are not bound by the sins of our forebearers. It is ultimately our own relationship with the Lord and our faithfulness to him that is the determinant. Be careful of people who push this generational type thing. The sons of Korach compose these psalms. They are canonical. They're in the word of God eternally. Yet these are descendants of, of the very Korach responsible for one of the most serious rebellions in scripture cited in the New Testament uh, as an example of certain kinds of believers. There's certain kinds of believers who behave in the same pattern as Korach within the church. And we need to bear that in mind. So we have... This muscular didactic psalm 42, the first psalm of the second book of Psalms, and it is to the sons of Korach, or masculine of, sorry, of the sons of Korach. It is non-Davidic. Now, sons of Korach were contemporary with David, particularly in temple worship. The two perhaps most Famous, we know of from the scriptures, are Asaph, Asaph, 
which has to do with addition. God's going to add something. And the other is uh, Eitan or Ethan. Ethan. Uh, these were musicians in the Levitical choir of, of David in the temple, in the uh, tabernacle worship. Now, we all know this chorus, as the deer pants for the water, <clears throat> brooks, so my soul pants for thee, or soul pants after thee. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember, and I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go along with the throng and lead them in processions to the house of God. With the voice and joy of thanksgiving, a multitude keeping festival. Why are you in despair, O oh my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. Now, again, we are looking only at Psalms that have a strong messianic and or prophetic theme to them. This is a messianic Psalm. Uh, but it echoes, again, the rejection and crucifixion of Christ. Only this is special or unique, almost unique, in that it is non-Davidic. It is normally a Psalm of David that prefigures or foreshadows the crucifixion or passion of Christ. Here, it's the sons of Korach, but we see the same idea. Now, we apply this and we sing it ourselves, but let's remember the messianic element. My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Again, we looked last week at the mocking of Jesus and the crucifixion, particularly in John's gospel. Well, there is a relationship between not the synoptic passion narratives primarily, but the Yohanan, that is John's version of the passion narrative, and this Psalm 42, the first Psalm of the second book of Psalms. I used to go along with the throng and lead them in processions to the house of God. Let's look at John, John's gospel, John's triumphal entry narrative. Turn with me, please, to the gospel of John, chapter 12. On the next day, the great multitude who'd come to the feast when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, they took branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to cry out, Hosanna, 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 which means save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat upon it, and as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming on a donkey, on a is coming seated on a donkey's colt from the book of Zechariah, chapter 9, verse 9. Again, we have a synoptic version of it, but it seems to more closely parallel what we see in John. They're expecting the Messiah to come. 
people at this point are thinking he's the Messiah. Of course, as we've dealt with on other takes, the expectation is he's going to depose the Romans. They didn't think of him coming to be the Paschal Lamb. But this is the beginning of the Paschal Feast, getting ready for, ready for Passover. The lambs are going to be inspected to see if they were suitable for sacrifice. And if the Levites found no spot or blemish, they would deem the lamb suitable for sacrifice. That very day, of course, Jesus is put on trial. And finding no sin in him, they condemned him to death. He was suitable for sacrifice, etc. We have a lot of teachings on this kind of thing. But they're waiting for him to lead through the East Gate or through the beautiful gate, the Shahar Akamim, <clears throat> possibly, but certainly the East Gate, whether they're the same or different, is disputed by the archaeologists. And he's going to come across the Kidron through the temple, in, through the temple gate on the east side, into the Temple Mount area in front of the, the temple. And at this point, liturgically, they are singing the Hallel Rabbah, Psalm 113 to 118. It's sung twice a year. It's sung at the Feast of Tabernacles, but it's also sung at the beginning of Passover. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Now, this is showing us the relationship between the sons of Korach, who were temple musicians, and John's gospel. Why is that? The Levitical priests would lead this march in what was known as a psalm of ascent, a psalm of ascent. We're going up to the Temple Mount, going up to Zion to worship the Lord. And they would begin with Psalm 113, but they knew that they were getting close to the Temple Mount and were talking something on the order of upwards of 100,000 people, pilgrims from various, even other countries of the Roman Empire. And they're coming through the East Gate to the Temple Mount. And when the Levites get to the east gate the people in the back know how close they are to the temple by the singing of the chorus blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord we bless you from the house of the lord save us save us hoshana hoshana or hosanna hosanna hoshana hoshana and they would know this, okay? But now Jesus is at the forefront of it. And they begin to celebrate Passover as if it were the Feast of Tabernacles. Again, I men mentioned this only in passing. We have other tapes explaining this, this stuff in, in, in considerable detail. So they're singing the Hello Rabbah to Jesus. He's leading the procession of the worshipers coming to the temple for the Pesach, for the Passover, okay? He's leading them, and they're all cheering him and so forth. Now, we know what happens when the Sanhedrin object and so forth. Again, I'd point you to our uh, teaching tape on Palm Sunday, what really happened on Palm Sunday. It's available on the Internet. But we see this reference from Psalm 42 to what we see in John chapter 12. 
I used to go along with the throngs and lead them to the procession to the house of God. Well, that's a prophecy of, of Jesus who did that. With the voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. They were singing. But then the tone changes. Why are you in despair, O oh my soul? Why do you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. O oh my God, my soul is in despair within me. Now, we see what happened beginning in Gethsemane, in Gatshemone, the Garden of the Winepress, opposite the Temple Mount on the east side of the Kidron at the foot or at the, on the western slope of the Mount of Olives, but to the east of the Temple Mount across the Kidron. Some of you are familiar with Jerusalem and you've been there and you know exactly what I'm talking about and trying to describe, okay? But it's there he says this, Oh my God, in verse six, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore, I remember thee from the land of the Jordan and the peaks of Hermon from Mount Mizar. We have references here to something that took place at the Jordan that he is remembering and something that takes place on Mount Hermon, okay? What two things happened at the Jordan and Mount Hermon. Now, again, this is a prophetic psalm. One, two things happened. Jesus was baptized at Bethany, Bethany beyond the Jordan. And when he is baptized, the voice of the Father is audibly heard from heaven. This is my beloved son at the baptism of Jesus by John the Baptist, Yochanan HaMatbil, the voice of God is heard from the heavens. And this is the first place in the New Testament that the voice of God is associated with thunder, a uh, typology that we see repeatedly in the book of Revelation but it begins at the Jordan when God the Father speaks from heaven concerning his son at his baptism. He hears it audibly. Now, those who were faithful to God under the law, John and his disciples, they heard the voice of God. This harkened back to what happened with Moses on Mount Sinai, but they heard the voice. The others heard thunder. So the person here who's in despair, which we know ultimately prophetically would be Jesus, is thinking back to the time when the Father assured him, when God assured him, you're my son, I'm well pleased with you. But now knowing what's coming to him, he's in a state of despair. Okay. The second is Har Hermon, what happens on Mount Hermon. We're talking now Matthew 16 and so forth. We're talking about the transfiguration. 
the transfiguration, where Jesus is transfigured. And there is direct communication. Let's look very briefly, please, to Matthew's gospel. Turn with me, if you will, to Matthew 17. It begins in 16, but we'll look at 17. He brings Peter, James, and his brother John, and brought them to the high mountain by themselves. Tradition, of course, holds this erroneously to be Mount Tabor. Uh, that's the Eastern Orthodox Church and the Roman Church. It doesn't fit the geography, and it's not an exceedingly high mountain, as it is described elsewhere. Uh, it is only Mount Hermon that's exceedingly high, which exactly fits Caesarea Felipe, a place today called Banyas, where he was at this particular time when he made his pronouncement to Peter. And Peter answered and said, and behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to him, okay? He was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun. His garments became as white as light. They began to see him in his deity. And Peter answered and said, Lord, is it good for us to be here? And of course, he again wants to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. He thinks it is the commencement of the millennial reign of Christ represented by the Feast of Tabernacles that we see in Zechariah 14. And while he was speaking in verse 5, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice of the cloud, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. This is my beloved son. The Father speaks to Jesus from heaven in the presence of of the disciples. It happens again. Okay, this is my beloved son. So in the psalm, we are seeing references to two places where Jesus and witnesses heard the voice of God. And I'll just look at quickly for the sake of brevity, Luke 3.22 at the baptism. The Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form. Now, again, you've got the Son, the Holy Spirit, and the Father. It's Trinitarian, this verse in Luke 3, 22. And the Spirit descends on him in bodily form, like a dove, and a voice came out from heaven. Thou art my beloved Son, and thee I am well pleased. So, in this maskil, this didactic psalm of the sons of Korach, we see the person whose soul goes into despair recollects two previous events. Those events are what happened at the Jordan and what happened on Mount Hermon, Har Hermon. Twice the voice of God is heard speaking to Jesus and speaking about Jesus as his beloved son in whom he is well pleased. And he's in this state where he's going to be forsaken, abandoned, given over to crucifixion, killed in our place, temporarily rejected by the Father, although fully divine, fully human. 
Now, again, in his baptism, his divinity is hinted at and then revealed when the Shekinah, when the Holy Spirit comes on him bodily. But then it happens in the transfiguration. Twice his deity is seen as fully God, fully man, and twice in the presence of witnesses, the Father speaks from heaven. He's trying to remember the call, the promise, the relationship with the Father at a time when that is all drying up quickly because he's going to take our sin, that is the culpability for our sin, to give us his righteousness. This is why it says Herman, and this is why it says Jordan. The same kind of thing happened both at the transfiguration and at the baptism, okay? Now, we know deer panting for the water, my soul pants for thee, is desiring the living water. From John 7, 38, 39, it's the Holy Spirit. But again, we only mention this in passing. In verse 7, we get to the point. Deep calls to deep at the sound of the waterfalls. All thy breakers and thy waves have rolled over me. We see allusions back to what happened at the cascade at Caesarea Philippe. Okay, that was Peter. Well, that happened. Okay, Matthew 16, as we mentioned. There's the waterfalls. That's the only time we see Jesus associated with the waterfall cascade, and the waterfall's still there. Some of you have seen it. Okay, at least it's there during the times of the year when the snow on Mount Hermon is melting, coming down through the uh, aquifer inside Mount Hermon and into the cave, which was known as uh, the gates of hell. But I digress. I refer you to the teaching tape. In fact, better yet, we have it filmed as a location message, filmed on location in Israel. I believe it's available on the internet. You can watch the teaching on site, and I point out Thou art Peter upon this rock, what the rock was, what the uh, gates of Hades were, and so forth. Uh, I'd refer you back to the video. But we see a reference to something that happens at waterfalls, the sound of the waterfalls. And it was at the sound of the waterfalls that Jesus was going to go up to the transfiguration. Now, much can be said about this mount of transfiguration that's above the waterfalls at Caesarea Felipe, today called Banyas. Please watch the video if you haven't seen it. Filmed on location. <clears throat> what can be said is this. According to the historical book of Jasher, when the Nephilim came down, they came down onto Mount Hermon. So the Nephilim came down. That's where Jesus goes up. That's where Jesus goes up. <clears throat> now, at this place of the waterfall, something happens. Jesus conflicts, uh, confronts the belief system of the pagans. This is the Roman Empire now. Previously, 
the god Pan had been worshipped there in a very grotesque manner involving rituals of bestiality with goats. It's really ugly, but again, we explain it on the teaching tape uh, video. Pan, and you can still see the alcoves there where the statuettes of his nymphs were and things like that, still there carved in the escarpment of the facade of, of, of the cliff around the gates of hell. <coughs> Pan in Greek mythology was a god who pretended to be a man. But by the time of the Romans, a pagan temple called a Neronium was built there, later called the Neronium, but it was a place of emperor worship. Specifically, it was the worship of Caesar Augustus, the first emperor deified in his lifetime and a major type of the Antichrist. Same location. So while at this place of the waterfalls, uh, Pan was a man, I'm sorry, a god who pretended to be a man. Caesar was a man who pretended to be a god. And it was there that Jesus confronts this as someone who was fully God and fully man, fully human and fully divine. That's what takes place at the waterfall. But now this hybrid, not 50-50 hybrid, but 100% human and 100% divine hybrid, <laughs> something is going to happen. Although God, there's going to be a separation between his human and his divine nature when he takes our sin. Although he always remains fully God and fully man, a functional separation takes place at the place of the waterfalls. But then we have reference to waves, breakers, that have rolled over me. Again, this alludes back in figure to Psalm 2 that we began our series with, okay? The, the roar of the sea being figurative of the nations in an uproar. Again, you can go back to the first teaching. So you have the strong water emphasis. Verse 8, the Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime, and his song will be with me in the night, a prayer to the God of my life. I will say to God, my rock, why hast thou forsaken me? What does Jesus say on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This, again, is a messianic prophetic psalm in the literary genre and the musical genre of Maskil, composed by the sons of Korach under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It goes on. Why do I go mourning? Because of the oppression of the enemy. The enemy, of course, being Satan. They would not have crucified the Lord, he would not have crucified the Lord of glory. The enemy, of course, being the Sanhedrin, the enemy being the Herodians, and of course, the Roman government. Uh, as a, everybody was against him, everybody was against him. But not only was the Romans against him, the imperial power, not only were the Herodians against him, 
Not only was the Sanhedrin against him, the, the Sadducees and Pharisees who hated each other were aligned against him. His own kind were against him. The pagans were against him. Everybody was against him. The devil was against him. But there's one more. The father was against him. The father was against him. No wonder he was going through a, a crisis. Let's look, please, very briefly. I know you mostly know this, but for the sake of the recording, we should mention it. Turn with me to Isaiah 53, the fourth servant song of Israel, Hanavi, Isaiah 53. Verse 3, he was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. It says day and night. Like one from whom men hide their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. If the devil's against you, the devil's against you. Powerful enemy, but uh, that's a good thing. You don't want him to be on your side. If the imperial authorities, the secular government, the military is against you, they're against you. If the corrupt theocracy, the Sanhedrin is against you, they're against you. Everybody's against you. You're betrayed by your own friend. But the father's against you? Didn't you say, I'm your son? And it's me in whom you're well pleased? Didn't you say that at the Jordan? Didn't you say that on Mount Hermon? Quite a situation in this psalm. This is quite a psalm. First psalm of the second book of Psalms. Mosquil, the sons of Korach. So we read Psalm 42, verse 10, as a shattering of my bones, my adversaries revile me. Well, they say to me all day long, where is your God? Again, mocking him on the cross. Where's your God? Let him deliver you. You raised others from the dead. You can't help yourself. What we looked at last week. Why are you in despair, O oh my soul? In verse 11. Why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him. The help of my countenance and my God. Again, we make reference to Hebrews, counting the joy set before him. <laughs> he did not lose faith, did not lose heart under incredible trials, only it would not be an adequate description to call what Jesus went through as a trial. It's just, for want of a better way to put it, one of the better words to explain it, what he went through is something that no other man has ever gone through. No matter what trials you or I have, no matter what valleys we have ever gone through, it was nothing like him. We're told in Job that nobody has a right to complain because of their sin, no matter what happens to them. <laughs> but with Jesus, he had no sin. He who knew no sin took ours. 
He was the beloved son, and now he's forsaken. He had a reason. He's in despair. Why have you become disturbed? Yet he still did not totally despair. He had that hope. Now, remember, we're not going to go into the Greek and Hebrew. Well, Hebrew is tikva, so we're looking at the Old Testament. Um, in the scripture, hope is a future fact. Always remember, hope is a future fact. He knew it. It's a separate psalm, but it progresses. Chapter 43, verse 1. Vindicate me, O God, and plead my case against an ungodly nation. An un a godless goy. Obviously, again, messianic prophecy concerning pointing ahead to imperial Rome. Deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man. Let's talk about Pilate. Let's talk about Herod. Let's talk about Caiaphas and Ananias, the corrupt high priests, corrupt Herodians, corrupt Roman governments. Talking about Judas Iscariot, his bosom friend, one of the twelve. For thou art the God of my strength. Why hast thou rejected me? Oh, boy. He felt that God rejected him. Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? Oh, send out thy light and thy truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to thy holy hill and to thy dwelling place. Wherever he was hanging, he was in walking distance of the Temple Mount. Now, we know that the Temple Mount from Hebrews and from the Old Testament are reflections. Galatians tells us that there is a Mount Zion in, in Jerusalem in heaven. And in Revelation, we see it coming down. The earthly one, the physical, the geophysical geo one, and the architectural one is a reflection, a copy of what exists in the heavenlies, according to Hebrews and so forth. I will go to the author of God, which was the cross, but to God my exceeding joy, and upon the lyre I shall praise thee, O God, my God. Again, this brings in the musical aspect of the sons of Korach as musicians. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why are you disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. The help of my countenance and my God. So we have these two psalms of crucifixion consecutively. That is how the second book of Psalms in the Hebrew canon opens. Both of them prophetically foreshadowing and describing the crucifixion of Jesus as messianic and prophetic Psalms in the genre of masquil. Now, don't get me wrong. It's a lovely, somber, but encouraging chorus. 
as the deer pants for the waters of my soul longs after you. We all, we all love that chorus. It's a very nice chorus. And uh, used in worship and you can be together and the spirit is moving in and the fellowship and the congregation of the place of worship and we're singing that. Well, that's nice. We should. But there's a lot more to this psalm than that. It's messianic and it's prophetic. Unfortunately, people tend to look only at the music. Or they sing the lyrics devotionally. That's not wrong. But we have to bear in mind, it goes much deeper than that. It's prophetic and messianic. It's about Jesus being identified with us and taking our sin and going before the Father and facing the rejection that we would have faced had he not done that. It's about the travail of his own soul as described by Isaiah and so forth. And as is later described in some of the other Psalms, such as 69, Psalm 69, which I hope we'll eventually come to. But there we have the opening of the second book of Psalms, Psalm 42, Psalm 43, about the crucifixion. Okay. Now, we come to Psalm 45. Psalm 45 is our next one. It is also a maskil of the sons of Korach, and it is called a song of love. It's for the musical leader, the choir director, as it were, according to the Shoshanim. Shoshanim. One of the titles of Jesus in the Song of Solomon is Shoshana Hasharon, the Rose of Sharon, the Rose of Sharon. Now, those who are expert in those things tell us that it was not a rose as we think of a rose. It was a multicolored flower that was a kind of multichromal lily, very beautiful, very, very beautiful. It's translated into modern Hebrew as rose, okay? Shoshana, Shoshanim. The girl's name Susan. In Hebrew is Shoshana, Susan or Susanna. Originally, Susanna comes from the Hebrew Shoshana, and it means these, what we translate, roses. But Jesus occurs with the definite article. I am the rose of Sharon. And, of course, the rose... We can go on and look at it with the thorns and so forth and something ugly becoming something beautiful and things of this nature. There are those who have looked at this very carefully from the point of view of botany and horticulture to better understand the messianic typology of the Song of Solomon, but also of Psalm 45. Okay. I would describe this psalm as... The Song of Solomon, Chapter Zero. The Song of Solomon, Chapter Zero. We have the Song of Solomon, Chapter One, 
But this is the Song of Solomon, chapter zero. My heart overflows with a good theme, this love song. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. Now that's important in itself. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. When somebody is really prophesying in the power of the Holy Spirit, and more essential and, and, and obviously more important is when Jesus spoke. His spoken words were the written words. The spoken word was the written word. He was the word made flesh. What he spoke was written. Uh, it was not like you'd speak something and then say something else next week. No, no. Everything was recorded. It was all the word of God. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. This has a far-reaching meaning, not our subject tonight, but worth pointing out. Thou art fairer than the sons of men. Again, very, very descriptive and virtually paralleling or echoing what's in the Song of Solomon. Grace is poured upon thy lips. Therefore, God has blessed thee forever. Eternal divine blessing. Gird thy sword on thy thigh, O mighty one, in the splendor and thy majesty. And in thy majesty ride on victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let the right hand, let thy right hand teach thee awesome things. Thine arrows are sharp, the people fall under thee. Thine arrows are in the heart of the king's enemies. Let's hold it there. I take it most of us are familiar with the Song of Solomon, but it's worth going there just for literary contrast to understand what is happening. Turn with me, please, to Hashir Hashirim, the Song of Solomon. Verse 2, chapter 2, verse 1. I am the rose of Sharon, the lily of the valleys. And it gives the same kind of descriptive language. My beloved is coming. And it describes him and his wedding day. And it gives further description of him as a warrior when, when he's coming. Uh, in, in chapter 7 and 8, when the lovers begin speaking. And his sword is with him and his warriors are with him and all of this kind of language. My beloved is like this. My beloved is like that. He is singing the passion he has for the bride, but the bride is singing about the passion she has for the bridegroom. In other words, the Song of Solomon very much derives as literary genre from Psalm 45. You cannot understand the use of the literary genre and the poetic imagery of the Song of Solomon unless we understand it in light of Psalm 45, okay? Now, most of you know that I hold the view that Solomon's romance with Shulamit is a picture of Christ's romance with the church, and that the song of the reason for this some 
simply tried to say it's God's model for marital love. Well, I don't deny it's a divine model for marital love, as the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. But to reduce the Song of Solomon to simply that, it's like confusing the box that the candy is in with the candy. <laughs> it may be a nicely decorated box with a ribbon on it for someone's birthday or anniversary, a nice box of Belgian chocolate, and it's very pretty and ornate and everything, and there's a picture on it of, of, of the chocolate, and it's wrapped with the ribbon and so forth, and it's very nice looking to give as a present, but the chocolate is inside. <laughs> well, the Song of Solomon and Psalm 45 are the same. The Song of Solomon, Hashir Hashirim, is read liturgically as what's known as one of the five Megilot, the five ritual scrolls of Judaism, and always has been. It is read the Saturday of Passion Week. In other words, the day after what we would call Good Friday. It wasn't really Good Friday, but with the Julian calendar, they made it that. The Saturday of what we would call Easter Week, the day before Easter, that Saturday. We explain the time differences between the church uh, liturgical calendar and the original Hebrew calendar, fest festal calendar, on our teaching on Amos 7 and 8. If you want to refer to it, it's available on Amos 7 and 8. But here we see it's read on that Saturday. And we also address it on Midrash in the Garden. Midrash in the Garden, we talk about it. But on that Saturday, when Jesus is in the grave, the Song of Solomon is read. And the Song of Solomon is, of course, constructed around two dreams, chapter 3 and chapter 5. Chapter 3, it is the best dream of the bride. She's ready for the bridegroom to come, and she goes off with him, and they live happily ever after. Chapter 5 is her worst nightmare. The bridegroom comes, she doesn't want to get out of bed, and she misses him. Now again, the Song of Solomon has a lot to do with the death of the Messiah, the continual references to the mountain of Myrrh, the hill of frankincense, anointed for burial, etc., etc. I'm not talking about the Song of Solomon except in relation to Psalm 45. But Jesus kept taking in Passion Week what was going to be read in the synagogue and in the temple and applying it to himself as the messianic fulfillment. As we already saw, he was the messianic fulfillment of the Hallel Rabbah, of the great praise, Psalm 113 to 118, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It even sounds nice in the Vulgate. Benedictum quiveni in nomine dominum. It's just beautiful. He shows himself as the fulfillment of it. Or the building block that was rejected became the cornerstone of the new earth, the new world. That also was from the Halal Rabbah. But the Song of Solomon is going to be read the following Saturday. And a few days, maybe not much more than 48 to somewhere between 48 and 72 hours before that. Probably closer to 48 hours before that. Jesus takes what's going to be read ritually, the next Megillah, about the wise and foolish virgins. Chapter 4, 
She's ready for the bridegroom. Chapter five, she's not. The wise virgins and the foolish virgins. Jesus takes what's going to be read and what to this day is still read in the synagogues on that day and shows himself as the messianic fulfillment of it. But again, this imagery of the Song of Solomon comes from the 45th Psalm. Okay. And we're told the following. He rides in majesty and victory for the cause of truth, meekness, and righteousness. Truth, meekness, and righteousness. The cause of Christ, the cause for which he comes, will always feature truth, meekness, and righteousness. Truth comes first. Doesn't matter how sincere somebody is or how dedicated they are or what they believe, that is all religious nonsense. Something's either true or it isn't. If there's no truth, if it isn't true, the rest does not matter. Oh, but I know Catholics who are so sincere when they kneel down before a statue of a dead person and light the candle. Yeah, I, I always remember the Buddhist monk in Saigon when I was a kid who poured the kerosene over his head and lit a match. You never saw a more sincere man in your life. If the truth is not there, the rest is meaningless. Truth is never compromised. Meekness. Jesus was meek, but he was never weak. He was meek but never weak. Think of a young father who's tall, athletic, and very muscular. A, a really well-built guy with big biceps and, and, and big pectoral muscles, like a weightlifter type or an athlete type guy, a really fit, tall, fit guy, professional athlete type guy. And his wife, they, he and his wife have their first baby. And he picks up that baby for the first time and he holds his infant son or infant daughter for the first time with all those big muscles and those big hands and those big biceps and this big guy is holding his baby. <laughs> and he's so careful. He's absolutely meek, but he's not at all weak. Jesus is meek but not in the slight, slightest is he weak. Let's continue. And righteousness. Notice, you must have truth and meekness for righteousness to have any meaning. You can have people, corrupt judges and corrupt prosecutors who apply the law without mercy, or you can have others who fail to apply the law because they're weak. <laughs> when God applies his judgments, he's never weak, but he is meek. When the Lord corrects believers, when he straightens things out in our life, there's no weakness. But fortunately for us, there's meekness. Then comes the righteousness. Where there is the righteousness of God, there will always be that combination of truth and meekness. On that basis, his righteousness is established. Let thy right hand 
teach the awesome things. We know Yahweh brings salvation by his right hand, Jesus at the right hand of the Father. Now we've seen the meek a bit. No weak. Let's look at what happens when that same big athletic guy puts down a little baby and picks up a rat trying to get into the pram and crushes it to death with his hand. Thine arrows are sharp. Words. The peoples fall under thee. Thine arrows are in the heart of the king's enemies. The words of Jesus will pierce the heart of his enemies. Then we get to what we see in the epistle to Hebrews. Let's begin by going to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, please. Can we turn to Hebrews in the New Testament? Chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. If we were to begin in verse 6, this is one of the strongest polemics against the Arianism of the Jehovah's Witnesses, denying the deity of Christ. But it is verses 8 and 9 that are quoted in Psalm 45. But of the Son, he says, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy companions. It's quoted directly from Psalm 45. It points to the deity of Christ. Psalm 45 points to the deity of the bridegroom. There's the scepter. Verse 7, thou hast loved righteousness and hated wickedness. He got those big muscles. He's a very meek kind of person. But you don't want to get on the wrong side of him. People have often described to remember it, the American heavyweight boxer, Joe Lewis. I personally think Joe Lewis was probably the best heavyweight boxer of all time. There were other very good ones, but I don't think anybody could have stood against Joe Lewis when he was in his prime. And people who knew him, including other boxers, say what a gentleman he was. What a mild-mannered, as it were, meek person he was. Nicest guy you could ever meet was Joe Lewis. Those who knew him said, including other boxers who fought him. But they also said you wouldn't want to get in a ring with him. Well, Jesus is like that to an exponential degree to an infinitive degree. Nicest person, beyond nice. Meekest person, beyond meek. But you don't want to be his enemy. He loves righteousness and hates wickedness. Therefore, God has anointed. Now, that word in Hebrew is again, Mishchan, Mishich, Moshiach. So we get the word Messiah, Moshiach. Speaks of the Messiah. Now again, we have parallelisms to the Song of Solomon, beginning in verse 8. All the garments are fragrant, thy garments, 
and myrrh and aloes and cassia out of every of out, out of ivory palaces stringed instruments have made thee glad king's daughters are among thy noble ladies at thy right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. Now that relates to the Song of Solomon. I won't, also to the Markisheva, the Queen of Sheba. I won't go to that right now. But let's look at verse 8 again. Notice the myrrh and aloes. The myrrh and the aloes. Song of Solomon, once again, please. Verse 13. Banks of sweet scented herbs. His lips are lilies dripping with liquid myrrh. Verse 14 of chapter 4. Nard and saffron, calamus and cinnamon, with all the trees of frankincense, myrrh and aloes. And there are other verses in the Song of Solomon saying the same thing, myrrh and aloes. Turn with me, please, to the Gospel of St. John. Chapter 19, verse 39. Nicodemus came with Joseph of Arimathea, who had first come to him by night, bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds in weight. The myrrh and the aloes, the anointing of the corpse of the bridegroom when the Song of Solomon goes to the mountain of Myrrh, the hill of frankincense, anointed for burial. We see the king's daughters and all her ladies with him. Again, the imagery of the Hebrew wedding that we see in Matthew 19, Matthew 20, but also that we see in Matthew 25, that kind of imagery with the women in a love song. The king will desire your beauty. Listen, O daughter, give attention and climb your ear in verse 10. Forget your people and your father's house. When a woman is in love and she's getting married and going off to get married and go on her honeymoon, she's not thinking about other stuff. She's fixated on the relationship with her beloved. I am my beloved's, my beloved is mine. It continues. The king will desire your beauty because he is your Lord. Bow down to him. Notice the bride worships the bridegroom. The daughter of Tyre will come with a gift. The rich among the people will entreat your favor. The king's daughter is all glorious within her clothing is interwoven with gold. She'll be led to the king in embroidered work. The emphasis on these garments, on the wedding garments. She'll be led to the king in embroidered work. The virgins, her companions who follow her, will be brought to thee. They will be led forth with gladness and rejoicing. They will enter into the king's palace. This alludes to eternity, of course. In place of your fathers will be your sons. You shall make them princes in all the earth. And I will cause thy name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, the people will give thee thanks forever and ever. Something eternal when this bride is ready for the bridegroom. 
Turn with me, please, to the book of Revelation. Chapter 21, verse 2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And of course, the praise goes on forever and forever. Revelation chapter 19, verse 7, let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the linen is the righteous acts of the saints. How is the bride dressed for her wedding ceremony, for the nuptial, his banner over me, his love? How is the church to be dressed for the bridegroom, for the marriage supper of the Lamb? Our righteous deeds, our righteous deeds are the adornment, our righteous deeds certainly the garments of salvation, but our righteous deeds is the adornment of the bride. To understand these ultimate revelations of God from the apocalypse, from the book of Revelation, we have to understand the complete wedding imagery from the Gospels, from Ephesians, certainly from the Song of Solomon, but nowhere is there anything that consolidates this, looking forward to the end, than Psalm 45, this wonderful messianic and prophetic psalm. Next week, Lord willing, we shall continue in our studies of messianic and prophetic psalmistry. We'll be looking, we'll beginning first of all with the 54th Psalm, but what we're really ultimately aiming to get to is the 69th Psalm, 69th Psalm, which uh, along with Psalm 22 is the most uh robust and crucifixional imagery and so forth. Substitutionary atonement, penal substitution, etc. So we will continue, Lord willing, next week with Psalm 54. But tonight we've begun with the second book of Psalms, looking at Psalm 42, 43, and 45. I trust it was a blessing and an encouragement to all of us.